going on, everybody? Welcome to yet another episode of the Core Consult RX podcast. Cole and I are once again without our buddy AJ. It's just us. He's too busy living that good life, being on vacation. It's nice because it is cold and wet here. It is. Like miserable. I guess cold's relative, though. We're going to Atlanta for Christmas, and the high is like 20 yeah. degrees, which for many of you around, listening i'm sure that's not that bad but for, but for us for us it's like that is preposterous miserable. what do you mean i can't wear shorts <laughs> it's december yeah no it's yeah it's crazy I, I will say when i was in uh in march we went to um colorado to go snowboarding mm-hmm. and we went one morning we went to a snowmobiling and this up the mountain somewhere and it was like i want to say it was like negative Something preposterous. It shouldn't be <laughs> it was, in the. It shouldn't be in the negative. It, it was so cold. I was like, "This is what planet are we on?" Anywhere where it's in the negative should not be inhabited. I was. I saw the <laughs> kickoff temperatures for like all the for multiple NFL games yesterday, and three or four of them were in the negative. Yeah, that's that's where I. I go well. Here's where my, I draw here's, the line. Here's my jersey. See <laughs> <laughs> you guys on my back south. Uh, but I'm hoping it just enjoying his vacation. So good for him. But unfortunately. Cole and myself are graduates, so we don't get to... <laughs> no enjoy. vacations for us. We don't get to have fun. So here we are with you guys. Uh, I know it's been a... We haven't had as many episodes released this month, but um, we're going to hopefully squeeze another one another one in uh, probably before this one actually gets released. But uh, it's December, so hopefully you guys can forgive us um, or find a better podcast to listen to in the first place, right? <laughs> so today is another accredited episode, and... Uh, once again, we've partnered with FreeCE.com, and so for those of you who are members of FreeCE.com and have an unlimited membership, so you have access to all their content, that includes our podcasts. And so after you listen to the podcast, um, we're going to give you a password, and you will go to the website. Um, we'll have a link in the show notes. Take the post-activity test, and then you'll receive, assuming you pass the test, that is, then you will get one hour of continuing education credit for pharmacists and nurses. And uh, yeah, if you're not a free CE member, I highly suggest that you check out their, their website to look at all the content they have. They have a lot of really great stuff. And um, there's also a link in the show notes for a discount off the fee of the annual membership. So um, appreciate them, as always, for working with us. Um, today's episode is something I, I don't know that we've covered specifically, or at least if we have, it's been a while. It's definitely been a while if we have. Some of it sounds familiar, but um, maybe. But I can't remember. We're going to be going over insomnia disorder. Yes. And so in celebration of that, the password for the post-activity test will be SLEEP. S-L-E-E-P in all capital letters. And that will give you access to the test, which will be grueling. <laughs> Brutal. <laughs> Probably not. But uh, yeah, so we're going to cover insomnia disorder. And um, like always, we'll kind of start off with some basic background information. And then we're going to kind of go through step by step some of the the treatment classes that we have. And then kind of at the end, we'll talk about a minute analysis that came out this year um, that wasn't too surprising, but kind of gave us a little bit more insight on how to pick and choose between some of these agents. I meant to ask, do you have trouble sleeping? I don't. So when I, I have a terrible sleep schedule, as mm-hmm. you've pointed out before on the <laughs> podcast, but when I actually lay my head down to go to sleep, it takes me maybe 20 seconds to That's fall asleep. very nice. I'm similar. I mean, not 20 seconds, but within a couple of minutes, but I have multiple friends who have a lot of trouble yeah. sleeping and I don't know, not too much, you know, apart from like very serious illness sounds worse to me than just laying awake all night. You know, I mean, yeah. sometimes I go through periods where I'm really stressed or something and my mind just can't wind down. But generally, I don't have trouble. Usually for me, if I have trouble sleeping, it's not necessarily stress. It's usually because I'm thinking about something with the podcast That's true. or something. It's because I'm actually, you're right. It's not necessarily stress. It's because I'm really excited about something. So then I just end up on my phone looking right. up stuff. That's exactly. I and then I try to lay down and all I'm doing is thinking about that stuff. Yeah, that's how, that's a good point. <laughs> Which, as you'll find out, it's not great sleep height. <laughs> <laughs> it's terrible. <laughs> it's the worst way to do it. So, But um, I guess, yeah, I, I, I always say like... When people are saying, "Oh, you should be on your iP- you know, iPad or doing this, that, and the other," I'm like, "Yeah, but I don't have trouble when I decide to go to sleep. Mine's right. just probably not overall for my best yeah, health. It, it's not the best tactic, but I, I'm like, I'll wait till I have trouble sleeping yeah. to fix those things. But it's probably similarly like with my diet. I'm like, I'm, I'll wait till I have high cholesterol to fix those things. But that's not next, the way. Next it thing go. you know, I'm honest. <laughs> <laughs> 
what they make them for. Yeah, it's true. So insomnia disorder, uh, I guess let's, we'll start off with, you know, sort of like the sleep cycle. Um, we're all, I've heard this, you know, some way, shape or form along the way, but it's something that, uh, I had to review myself and something I don't, I don't think about on a day-to-day basis, but, um, just a kind of brief overview. Um, the first big sort of subcategory would be our non rapid eye movement or NREM, um, sleep, which is going to make up of roughly around 75% of total sleep time. Um, in that, uh, non-REM sleep, you have what's called stage N1, which is the transition state sort of between wakefulness and actually falling asleep. Um, stage N2 is the lighter, what they refer to as alpha wave sleep. Um, it's going to be characterized by like sleep spindles, um, K complexes. If you were actually to have somebody doing a brain study or a, a brain study, a sleep study and monitoring their, um, their brain function while they're sleeping. Uh, and N3 is the last stage of non-REM, uh, and that is delta sleep or slow wave sleep. Um, that's going to be considered the most uh, restorative sleep. Um, it's going to help promote protein synthesis, wound healing, things like uh, restoration of the immune function, the stuff that obviously our bodies really need sleep for in the first place. Then we have rapid eye movement or REM sleep, which is the other 25% of your overall total sleep time. Um Possibly this plays a role in memory consolidation and uh, can aid with um, sensor and motor system development, things of that nature. Um, there's a, uh, if you're really interested in like sleep, you know, neurobiology and whatnot, there is a guy uh, named Matthew Walker, who's a, um, from the UK. He's a, a, basically a sleep scientist. Um, I've heard him on multiple podcasts. He's got a, he's got his own podcast now. He's got books out one of the smartest guys I've ever heard talk about sleep and he explains the most detailed, um, easy to understand explanations of this type of topic, um, I've ever heard. So check him out if you want to, he's really great. Um, and, uh, I think I want to say I've probably messaged him a couple of times trying to get him on here, but he didn't write back. Smartest ones never do. It's and, very pretentious between and us. And the smartest ones that they, they always make it easy to understand. They do. You know, yeah. They're good at explaining. But if only he would come hang out with us in the podcast. But, Tell oh, well, I guess, you know, he's got more important things to do, like running a lab. I have to say that I love sleeping. Like, I love sleeping. In the morning, all I want to do is not get up and just sleep some more. But at night, I do everything I can to postpone going to sleep. I'm the exact same way. Absolutely. I mean, any excuse I can find to not go to sleep. I, I despise going to sleep at night. I hate going to bed, but I love sleep. And sleeping. I like when I'm laying there, I'm really tired and I can fall asleep. But the fact that I had to stop whatever I'm doing that I'm into it at night and like go to sleep, mm-hmm. I, I fight it. And then I get up in the morning and I hate my life. What <laughs> if we I just didn't have to? I think, yeah, I think that they've tried that. I think it didn't go, I think it didn't go <laughs> For well. For 10 days it worked out and that was about it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, insomnia has a definition and it's important that we distinguish what insomnia is versus other issues. We'll talk about that with the diagnostic criteria. Um, because insomnia isn't just trouble sleeping. Like not all instances of trouble sleeping equals insomnia, especially if it's related to something else. So its actual definition is the inability to initiate or maintain sleep and can also be associated with problems or associated symptoms during the daytime. Um, it's kind of split into two um, facets depending on the length of the person's insomnia. There's acute insomnia. Sometimes it's called adjustment insomnia. Um, of course, this is when symptoms are present for a shorter period of time, specifically less than three months. And usually it occurs in response to an identifiable stressor or life situation. Um, and that's acute. And you'll see that, you know, not always are we having to, to initiate pharmacotherapy um, in those instances. Chronic insomnia would be symptoms that occur at least three times per week and that persist for greater than three months. And, of course, going back to the definition of insomnia, it's usually going to have effects during the day as well. And once you get to a place where you are going to say, okay, this patient is suffering from more of a chronic insomnia disorder, then you would want to sort of further subcategorize that into either isolated sleep onset insomnia, which is basically difficulty falling asleep in the first place. So by definition, it takes greater than 30 minutes to fall asleep. That would be isolated sleep onset. Then there's sleep maintenance insomnia, which is difficulty sleeping you know, through the night, or you're waking up too early in the morning and can't go back to sleep. 
Um, and that would be by definition being awake greater than 30 minutes after waking in the middle of the night. So you can get to sleep just fine, but when you wake up, it's, you, it's very hard to go back to sleep. Um, and then we also have mixed insomnia, which is basically the patients uh, have issues with sleep onset as well as maintenance, which is probably the worst situation to deal with because um, obviously it, there's limited options there for treatment. And we'll, we will touch on some potential strategies for, for handling that as we go. Yeah. Um, so as far as the diagnostic criteria, I said it's kind of particular. Um, in general, it's a, the primary complaint would be a dissatisfaction with sleep quantity or quality associated with one or more of the following symptoms, because it can't just be quantity because I have complaints about sleep quantity, but that has nothing to do with insomnia. It's just because I'm not in bed long enough to sleep enough. So you'll see how we kind of distinguish those things. But, uh, one, you, like Mike said, uh, this, the individual would need a, a difficulty initiating sleep. In children, interestingly, this may manifest as difficulty initiating sleep without a caregiver's intervention. Um, one thing I've been warned about, which I haven't done yet, is like letting your kids sleep in the bed with you, you know, if they have a yeah. nightmare or something like that. Um, because it's like just a, a horrible habit to like break, yeah. when, you know, I've when it gets there. The same, yeah. But then I have friends who like, like that happens and I'm like, oh my goodness, like, yeah, it's going to be really difficult. I go a nightmare. So you're scared <laughs> of something that's not real. <laughs> that's what you're going to tell your two-year-old. That's what I'm telling my, that's what I'm telling my son. As soon as he's of age, he's going to say, daddy, yeah. it's those scary Star Wars monsters that you let me watch. I'll go, you chose to watch them because <laughs> I sub- subliminally made you watch them when you were six months old. Six months. <laughs> um, so yeah, difficulty initiating sleep, difficulty maintaining sleep specifically characterized by frequent awakenings or problem returning to sleep after awakenings. Um, a lot of times people may say being awake for more than 30 minutes, kind of similar to the 30 minutes of, of falling asleep. Um, early morning awakening and then the inability return, to return to sleep. That is never an issue that I've had, just waking up too early. My issue is I'm always waking up too late and running out the door to work I, my whole life it's been yeah that way. I, I've, I have yet to woke up before my <laughs> alarm clock <laughs> i know never actually when i was in high school if my brother like woke me up before my alarm clock and i looked and it was just about to go off in like three minutes it would make me so mad oh, like you stole fight. those three minutes yeah. of sleep from how me. dare you and plus you gotta count the fact how many times you're gonna snooze i know there's like at minutes. least 25 to 30 minutes of snoozing i legit <laughs> do 30 to 40 minutes of snoozing, like to this day. It's hard. Oh, yeah, I do too. And I, I cannot get up. You know that dude, uh, the Navy SEAL guy that does the podcast, the Jocko Willink? Mm-hmm. He made a comment one time. He's like, just think, when you hit that snooze button, the first thing you did that day was fail. <laughs> was like, hey, you don't say that, Jocko. <laughs> it's too true, though. And it's, it is so true. It's awful it's so because funny. I'm like, it's not like I make a conscious decision. I am not coherent when I press the snooze button the first three times. I don't know what's going on. And I know it's my own fault. It's self-inflicted because I'm not going to bed on time. Right. And what's worse is for those 30 to 40 minutes of snoozing, I'm not getting good quality sleep mm, at all. I'm getting angry by the second. <laughs> exactly. So something needs to change. I had whittled it down to 20 to 25 minutes and that has... And now it's just made me late for work because I've extended it back to 40. It's horrible. Yeah. Sometimes I wake up because I don't hear my alarm at all. I wake up to a pillow to the head because my, <laughs> my wife's like, why is that going off still? Anna's a little more subtle, but definitely a lot of trying to wake me up in the morning. Um, Anyways. Uh, so, yeah. So, uh, next would be the, um, and this kind of follows under falls under um, extra things with the diagnostic criteria, but the sleep disturbance causes um, significant stress or impairment in social, occupational, academic, etc. Functioning um, occurs three times per week, like we said, with chronic, um, lasting for three months. And then it occurs despite the adequate opportunity for sleep. So that's what I was talking about is important. I do not have insomnia because I'm not giving myself an adequate opportunity right. to sleep. So it has to, they have to, like, you have an eight to nine hour period that you're available for sleep, but you can't get that much sleep. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's not better explained and does not occur exclusively during the course of another sleep-wake disorder. So narcolepsy, that would be sleep issues related to narcolepsy, not insomnia. Uh, sleep apnea, that would be issues with sleep apnea, not insomnia. Um, parasomnias, those sort of things. Uh, or if it's attributable to like substance use or medication, that would be different. Or pre-existing mental disorder. Um, or other medical condition that's causing it, it would be associated with those other disorders more so than calling it 
insomnia. I can't figure out why I can't fall asleep. I mean, I just do a little bit of crystal methamphetamine <laughs> late in the afternoon. I'm just wide awake. I do it at least three hours before bedtime. <laughs> I give myself space. <laughs> <laughs> I give myself a buffer. It's right after I drink the huge cup of coffee. And, exactly. So some other things that are important to kind of specify when you're actually giving someone a diagnosis, and this is more getting down to the nitty-gritty like documentation process, but this is all coming from like DSM-5. Um, they want you to kind of specify if it's episodic, so symptoms last at least one month but less than three, persistent, so they've been lasting longer than three months, um, or recurrence, so you've had two or more episodes separated you know, between each other, but it's happened within this time frame of a year. Um, and then the other thing that they wanted to kind of, um, take note of is, is there other, you know, a mental disorder, like substance abuse disorder, something like that, some kind of other medical condition, another sleep disorder, you know, restless leg, things like that, that could also be a factor because they want you to be very specific with the diagnosis because historically it's just been one of those things. People just say, oh, insomnia. And especially with the acute or short term, yeah. since that is generally related to something in particular, they want you to associate that with something. So definitely uh, a very long, in, which I think is important to kind of see too, because I feel like Sometimes when we think about the diagnosis of certain behavioral health issues, um, we kind of just assume there's like three things to look for. Oh, this person has it. But then there's so many other subcategories right. you have to consider. And we just boil it down to trouble sleeping. It's yeah. like, I've got yeah. insomnia. Right. Well, I mean, just because I play Call of Duty while I'm in bed, <laughs> I can't fall asleep. Um, do you have a TV in your room? Yeah. I'm not allowed. No? No. I do. I don't I, know that I'll ever be allowed. I, I will say, I don't think we watch it that often. But we do have, we used to, we it's just grew, having the option. We used to be really bad about that when we were like, when we first got married, when we were younger and stuff, and we used to absolutely have the TV on all the time. And I, the, but the thing is I can sleep totally fine. I don't know if yeah. it's the best quality sleep, but I can fall asleep instantly. If I'm really tired, yeah. you could have a, a marching band in my room and I'm going to go, okay, guys, have fun. Well, we of course didn't grow up with one in our bedroom. And so that was just a huge perk for me when I got to college was to be able to, which I only had one room. So that I was had your, that the, was your rebellious. Yeah. Act. That was my rebellious stage. I drank like <laughs> soda and then Ooh, had a TV in my at room. Night? Oh, yeah, dude. Late. But college I guess and so all through undergrad and pharmacy school, like I mean, we watch TV all the time in my bedroom, but I suppose those were like when I was getting the worst sleep of my life. So probably it's probably best that, we don't have one, but I complain about it all the time. <laughs> you just need to put your foot down. <laughs> cool. See how, see how that goes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We'll see how that goes. Dude, um, I, dude I can't be in the podcast anymore. <laughs> <laughs> she doesn't listen. It's okay. Uh, that's good. Um, so, of course, with any um, condition, we're going to talk about non-pharmacologic. It is especially important here because uh, while we're going to talk about some safer uh, medications versus others. It's definitely preferred to try to uh, first make concerted efforts to address the lifestyle situation because this is definitely an instance where lifestyle plays a huge role. And if you really have all this stuff nailed down, I mean, it's going to help a lot of people. So if they have all these things nailed down, but they're still having trouble sleeping, medication. Um, so there's obviously CBT. We talk about that for a lot of psychiatric disorders, insomnia as well. Cognitive behavioral therapy, um, is the preferred treatment for chronic insomnia. This is after the acute phase, uh, but I believe can, could help with the acute phase or do they specifically say chronic? So I think it is more chronic because at that point they're actually seeking help. And if right. there's a specific stressor, they may deal with it more on the anxiety side, which is still always important. I mean, ultimately cognitive behavioral therapy like you said, can address any type of behavior right. or at least aid. Right. Um, but they like specifically, they have cognitive behavioral therapy, like CPT I, which is cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia specifically. Yeah. Um, so there is a specific type that is utilized for this, but yeah, it can be, um, there's a lot of benefits to it. And it addresses common thoughts and behaviors that interfere with sleep, which yeah. seems to be my issue. If I ever have issues, it's just my brain's running on overdrive. Um, and again, I think to keep in mind too, this is for people who are actively seeking help or yeah. like, like, please don't email us about all the things we're doing because we're actively admitting that we, but I also don't have right. any trouble with insomnia. So that's right. the difference. Um, so I don't know, again, like you said, Cole, I don't know if that's the healthiest way to go about it, but this right. is when someone's seeking help, that's when this becomes a good option. Right. Don't just go be pushing CBT on just anybody. Right. Because <laughs> then they won't want to be around you. Um, so they try to help with the establishment of a sleep and wake time every day, seven days a week, and then stimulus control. Wait, um, you mean I can't 
sleep in on the weekends and expect my <laughs> sleep schedule to be perfect on the I know. Week. All I want is just one day to sleep, like Saturday. I just want one day where I can sleep in without an alarm clock. That's uh-huh. my big thing. Just just no alarm is set, but I can sleep without anything waking me up. And um, I rarely get that anymore, especially with the kid and whatnot. But when I can get that, it's just magical. The last time I did that, I learned my lesson. Because it, it was Saturday. I was really excited. I had a rough week. I was really excited to get some stuff done on Saturday. And I was like, you know what, though? I'm not going to set my alarm. And I lay down and I woke up. I was like, oh, oh. You, know, you kind of wake up in the morning. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, I feel rested. And I looked at the clock and it was three o'clock <laughs> in the afternoon, baby. Well, that would be wonderful, wouldn't it? I was I was furious at myself the whole rest of the day because I wasted all time. Yeah, I, would be, I would not say that as a waste at all. I'd be like, this oh, is so amazing. Bad. Well, plus, since my wife had been up since like 4 a.m. that morning, <laughs> right. like working out, she's already has that. I'm like, oh, cool. Yeah, my I'm issue is, is that, I mean, uh, both of our issues now is that. That means if we're sleeping late, that means that the, the that spouse no one's is, watching. No, no, yeah, no one's watching the kid or the his, spouse is. His survival then, instincts usually catch and kick in. I end up making up for that the rest of the day. Yeah, I get um, it. So yeah, um, stimulus control as well. So go to bed. Go to bed only when sleepy. That is an interesting recommendation because what if I'm like never sleepy? <laughs> like what if it's 3 a.m. before I'm sleepy? Anyways, um, go to bed only when sleepy. Use bedroom only for sleep and intercourse. If laying in bed for more than 20 minutes without sleeping, get up and try again later. And then no naps during the day, especially greater than an hour. And there's a number of other sleep hygiene related things that we've kind of been referencing related to screens in the bedroom or close to bedtime. Exercising, um, and we'll kind of go over those um, more in particular in just a second, but um, that's specifically with uh, what CBT addresses. Um, the other thing that can be a, a component of CBT for insomnia would be dealing with the anxious thoughts, which is a lot of times why people are having difficulty falling asleep in the first place, some kind of anxiety or stressor that's causing anxiety. Um, but the the cognitive behavioral therapist is, is good about utilizing techniques everything from mindfulness and meditation to like progressive muscle relaxation and, and things of that nature, which are all backed by some, maybe not the highest level, but some form of evidence as far as being efficacious. Um, the problem is a lot of people do not utilize CBT for insomnia strictly because one, the cost, it can be expensive. Some insurance companies may not cover it. The time it takes to actually go meet with a therapist and then practice what you've learned during therapy. Um, and also finding a good available, available, CBT therapist that specializes or at least has training with insomnia specifically. Um, And I will say, you know, when we think of CBT, we always think of it as being effective for the vast majority of people, but there have been case studies and, you know, cohorts and whatnot that it basically shows that there are people who do not respond well at all to CBT for insomnia. It doesn't help, even though they've done some of these, these techniques and, and actually taken it seriously, it, it just doesn't, you know, it's not effective for them. Right. Um, so just to put a bow on the sleep hygiene, which I want to emphasize because more than likely when you have a patient come in, especially if their primary complaint is, um, trouble sleeping or insomnia, it's probably been going on for a long time. So their first answer to, well, have you tried adjusting your like bedtime routine and sleep habits? They're going to say yes. Like they're gonna be like, yeah, I tried that. I did melatonin, did all these things. Um, but if you kind of know, all the different components of this in the back of your mind, you can be like, well, did you do this? Did you do this? Did you do this? And you can give that a go where they're really strict about it before moving on possibly. So um, we mentioned a few of them, maintaining regular bedtimes and awakenings. Don't go to bed unless you're sleepy. Sleep long enough to avoid feeling tired, but no more. So that's a bad habit I have if I get the opportunity. Um, Optimize the bedroom conditions, light, temperature, noise. And if you have a spouse, I'm sure there will be some disagreement as to what that might (laughs) look like um develop a bedtime ritual that allows you to unwind if you can't go to sleep or if you awaken and cannot go back to sleep do not stay in bed when 15 to 20 minutes we talked about this um get up and do something then come back don't go to bed hungry i never have that issue um but also don't like to have a big meal right before bed try a small snack try to have your actual meal be like three to four hours before bedtime um do not lie there and watch the clock. Um, you could get one with a luminous dial, but looking at the clock is kind of an activating activity. So try to avoid looking at it. Um, we talked about no naps, avoid caffeine and nicotine throughout the day. Um, specifically, just try to avoid caffeine after lunch. Um, I think, yeah, I can't remember exactly how many, how long the half-life is, but if you if you finish it around lunch, then you should get a couple half-lives before bedtime. And so hopefully the majority of it is is 
out of your system to any significant degree to be able to keep you awake. Um, avoid alcohol because, of course, it's sedating at first, but can be kind of activating later on and can lead to a fragmented sleep. And then exercising regularly is uh, very beneficial, but just avoiding rigorous exercise close to bedtime or even just general exercise like three to four hours before bedtime. The alcohol thing is interesting too because you always hear people, at least back, you know, historically they've talked about the nightcap and all that. And now in modern day, you'll hear a lot of people, especially in states like out west and whatnot, where cannabis is legalized or medicinal cannabis, people will use it for sleep as well. Um, one of the things that sleep um, expert was talking about, uh, and a couple of his things I saw on him, he was saying that uh, when you'll notice when somebody who does use cannabis or does use alcohol to help and do sleep, even though they feel like it really helps them go to sleep, when they come off of it, they start having like really vivid, crazy dreams because it's like their body's finally getting to that deep sleep yeah. level that they haven't been able to. You just don't realize that you, you, the sleep onset happens quicker, right. but it's not good quality sleep. Because you, because what you thought your issue was was rolling around for 30 minutes to an hour before you could fall asleep. So if it gets you right to sleep, then you're like, oh, oh yeah, it's perfect. perfect, great. But you really, yeah. You're probably still tired throughout the day, but you don't associate it with that because you weren't rolling yeah. around before falling asleep. Yeah, it's pretty pretty interesting. Kind of unintuitive, but... Um, Makes sense. It is. It does. Um, all right. So I guess starting with the medications, we'll kind of jump into the the hypnotics, um, also known as our non-benzodiazepine, benzodiazepine receptor agonists. And uh, if, if you're looking at like a picture of the... GABA receptor. So GABA A receptor. There's um, receptor sites for things like benzodiazepines. There's things for um, barbiturates and you know other non-benzo type uh, entities. Um, and they have different signaling um, responses and things like that when those when those uh, agonists bind to those receptors or block those receptors or what have you. Um, but our, our benzodiazepine receptors, we typically think of our benzodiazepine 1 receptor, which contains the alpha-1 isoform. This is going to be highly concentrated in the cortex, thalamus, and cerebellum. And it is going to be more responsible for like the sedative effects, um, as well as uh, um, like the amnesia that sometimes people report when they're taking certain hypnotic-type medications. Um, the benzodiazepine 2 receptor um, is the alpha-2 isoform. And that's going to be more uh, concentrated in the limbic system, um, amongst neuro, uh, motor neurons, and also in the dorsal horn of the spinal cord. And that is going to help to mediate the uh, anxiolytic effects as well as like the the mild relaxant effects, such as like with true benzodiazepines and things like that. So a non-benzodiazepine, like the ambiens and things that we're going to start off talking with, those are benzodiazepine receptor agonists, but they're selective for benzodiazepine 1, so the, the alpha-1 isoform, um, which is why you don't necessarily get relief from anxiety or you wouldn't use something like Ambien 4 as a muscle relaxant component because it doesn't have that same activity at the other receptor. It's funny that they're like officially classified as non-benzo benzos because in every way, except for binding to a different benzo receptor, they are a benzodiazepine, I would imagine, right? It's just not in the traditional sense. That's why they're calling them non-benzos. Well, I guess because I think it's because they're binding to more, they're more selectivity to one over the other. And oh, where ben, whereas benzo, traditional benzos are, are kind of be, non-selective. Yeah, non-selective. And like they're all, and they're also binding to like other things like propofol or barbiturates. They're going to be binding to different, not the benzodiazepine receptor necessarily, but like other parts of the same, you know, the GABA um, A receptor. I, I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying. Um, so yeah, so yeah, obviously don't get these confused with the benzos because um, while we would place these um, closer to first line in certain situations, the benzodiazepines we would we would obviously reserve. So um, one and the most common that you're familiar with probably is Ambien Zolpidem um, binding to the benzodiazepine one receptor. So it has a box warning for complex sleep behaviors, including sleepwalking, sleep driving. I've heard stories of sleep eating. And all sorts of craziness. Um, I'll tell a story that Dr. Wayne Wirt, uh, who's been on episode 100 and 200, told me that um, he had a friend of, of his that he knew, or a colleague, I guess, that had taken a Zolpidem that was prescribed. I mean, and hadn't had any issues in the past with it. Took a, a Zolpidem, went to bed, woke up the next morning and thought, oh, no, someone has broken into my house and destroyed my kitchen and didn't know what happened. Come to find out after doing some research and, you know, looking at surveillance tapes and whatnot 
Got up in the middle of the night, left his house, got in his car, drove to the store, bought a turkey, <laughs> went home, decided to make the turkey, put it in the oven, but didn't do any of the stuff right, and then just went back to sleep and like just made, just wreaked havoc all over his a t- turkey. A tur- yeah. Of all the things to buy, yeah, probably wasn't even Thanksgiving. I would have gone with, I, I don't know. Yeah. Where are you going to find a turkey at 2 a.m. when it's not Thanksgiving? It's, it's, it's a good question. I would have definitely And who's going to sell with, a turkey to a man in his underwear who looks like he's... I'm, you know, I, I imagine he got dressed, and, and because otherwise he would have been arrested, I imagine. <laughs> but um, yeah, I would have gone with the Lunchables. It's way easier, <laughs> so much way easier. easier to prepare. And you're going to get an Oreo. Yeah, uh, maybe. Depends on the one you get. Or a Butterfinger. And a Capri Sun that you can't get your, your straw <laughs> into. Stupid straw through. <laughs> I hate that thing. Uh, Anyways, I was eating those in college, by the way. Were you? Good. Uh, yeah. You say, hey, the one cool kid who like flip it upside down and put it to the bottom. I was like, yeah. whoa. Yeah. Anyways. Um, yeah, it wasn't me. I wasn't that cool. No, no. Be so, struggling in the corner with the regular style. So yeah, th- there's obviously concerning things about Ambien. Um, so with any of these, we just want to use use with caution and, and make sure that we're um, counseling people appropriately about the concerns. Uh, it doesn't have any anticonvulsive action, no muscle relaxant properties, no respiratory depressant effects. So those aren't an issue. So the main issue with interactions and things would be with the CNS uh, depression. Um, there is different dosing for males and females and elderly patients. Uh, so you would recommend maybe 10 milligrams for a younger male, 5 milligrams, so half the dose for female and, and elderly patients. Which almost never happens. Never happens, and I would see this all the time for a new start ambient um, female or elderly patient starting on 10 milligrams, which was, you know. Yeah. But might then, as well start. The, well, this was another <laughs> feature that we haven't referenced, but starting at the lowest dose and trying to find the lowest effective dose for any of these that we're going to talk about is what you want. There's no gold dose that you need to, yeah. to get to. So, um, take it on an empty stomach. Food does delay the action by about one to two hours. Uh, it of course has the immediate release, um, which we have efficacy seen for up to 35 days. It has a controlled release tablet with efficacy seen for up to six months. Um, and then some tolerance develops with, without tolerance developing. Sorry, sorry, without there. tolerance developing. Because I think that was the big push. If you are going to be on it more chronically, they want you to use the controlled release, which is usually the opposite of what we think of, right? For like opioids and things like that. Right. Interestingly, a lot of the studies with uh, we might talk about this with a meta analysis. I'm not sure, um, but a lot of the studies with these sleep medicines are very short. Yeah. Um, and so we, it's almost like they're designed for short-term use. <laughs> That's what you would think. So we just don't have a lot of long-term safety and efficacy data on them. There's also a sublingual tablet. These are branded as Ed, Edluar. 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 That is an awful one to say. Yeah. An intermezzo. Um, they're 1.75 and 3.5 milligram doses. These are for middle of the night awakenings with at least four hours of sleep left. So generally you would think of like an immediate release ambient is for sleep onset. Um, this would be for middle of the night awakenings. There's also a sublingual spray called Zolpa Mist that you can prime before the first use. I have never seen either of those, by the way. Yeah, I think you have to you have to prime it after the first use, or I think it's after two weeks if you haven't used it, which who in the world's let's not remember sit that. There. Yeah. But like two weeks later you would if you haven't been using it, you'd prime it again. Um drowsiness, dizziness, headache are the side effects along with the other, you know, crazy things at night. And it is a controlled substance um in America. Uh, a class four control substance. So the next one is S Zipaclone um, or uh, S Zopaclone, I should say, Lunesta. Uh, we all remember the commercials with the the lunar moth, and uh, mechanistically it's similar, but it does seem to be a little bit different. In fact, I don't think they're a hundred percent sure exactly how Lunesta. Uh, elicits its effect but it does interact with the the GABA receptor complexes um in this case though it's more binding allosterically um with the the to the benzodiazepine receptor um it does have high affinity for the alpha 3 subunit on the GABA receptor so it's a slightly different mechanism which i will say there is cases where if if zolpidem doesn't work switching to lunesta is not giving them something that's directly in the same class they do have slightly different mechanisms so i have seen that be a, 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 an effective strategy if if ambient's not working in a patient um, it does still carry the box warning for complex sleep behaviors sleepwalking sleep driving that's <laughs> sleepwalking sounds way better than sleep driving <laughs> sleep drive i mean talk i mean i, I, I imagine they... that if they compared that the drunk driving it would be just infinitely worse oh it has i to mean be. how can you sleep drive unless you have a tesla i feel like sleep driving cannot, <laughs> cannot be safe another reason for a tesla but that's um, I mean, one of the stories that I heard was like, a, you know, a guy going through the McDonald's drive through and 
going home and then eating his takeout. Like if you can make it through the McDonald's drive through remember your order, order and get home and eat. That's significant. I mean, if you can do all that, like you're kind of, you're a Jedi. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's pretty impressive. It's, I, I imagine that it's more that they don't remember it versus that they were actually in a yeah. truly sleepwalking type state yeah. that you see like on TV when they walk around like a zombie. It's yeah. probably just the anterior grade amnesia that they don't remember they did it. Yeah. Well, let's hope. But they also, I guess, have to be incapacitated enough to not realize that they're doing something crazy. So I guess, the, I don't know, yeah. nuts. It's just Hopefully nuts. every one of those stories, they were in a Tesla and everybody was safe driving. <laughs> this episode is sponsored by Tesla. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, can you imagine? Um, you should be taken immediately. We're going back to Lunesta, sorry. Our tangents are going to distract everybody. Um, it does need to be taken immediately before bed. Um, and the patient needs to hopefully have, well, ideally have around seven to eight hours, so a full night's sleep when they're taking it because it does have a little bit longer half-life. Um, same thing like with Ambien, you do need to take it on an empty stomach because if you take it with food, that's going to delay the onset of action, which means that you may still have some of the residual effects in the morning. Um, some of the common side effects, uh, drowsiness, dizziness, headache. Um, also with Lunesta, there's it's often reported that patients will experience like a metallic taste, um, which will go away once you stop taking the medication, but it can be um, very annoying for people who... Who do experience that right um then there's zaleplon branded as sonata very similar in mechanism of action and adverse effects to ambien um similar box warning for sleep behavior sleepwalking and driving it does have a shorter half-life um it's about an hour um so it might cause less problems in the morning if a person is having uh, is experiencing drowsiness throughout the morning despite a full night's sleep uh, it does not prolong sleep time or number of awakenings um but it might be a good as needed option for middle of the night awakenings. Yeah. So the studies, they basically showed that it wasn't effective for keeping you like overall, like treating your insomnia, which is why we hardly ever see this one. Right. But I will say, I personally use this in patients where they were on a a reasonable dose of something like Ambien. And then we give them like 10 tablets of Zalplon as well. And then they use that PRN and it really does work well. Um, take it on an empty stomach as well, which I don't know if you're going to be eating. Well, you might eat during a nighttime awakening. Um, and the efficacy has only been seen for up to 30 days. So another kind of short-lived trial um, you know, that we would hope to use for short-term use, but doesn't always happen. Yeah. All right. So instead of those non-benzodiazepines, let's talk about benzodiazepines. And, this, and we're not saying this is an... We'll talk about the order in which to yeah, use Yeah, this is not this an is order not where order. we would use them. This is just the order in which we felt like talking about it. <laughs> so benzodiazepines, in general, um, they are considered to be quote-unquote safe and effective. Again, this is assuming that they are being used properly, short-term, lowest effective right. dose, all that because stuff. Because so, they have an FDA-approval right, thing, that's they where have the to be, quote-unquote, considered right, safe and effective. Exactly. That's that's a little caveat For there. this indication. Yeah, it does not mean tripling the dose and taking them like crazy. Right. <laughs> not safe then. Along with opioids and alcohol. <laughs> right. So um, oftentimes, though, they are not going to be considered first line. Um, the Basically, f- five of them are primarily used as sedative hypnotics because they are rapidly absorbed. Um, they produce central nervous system actions more quickly than most other anxiolytic agents. Uh, someone that has problems initiating sleep um, would most likely benefit from an agent with quick onset but a short duration of action. Um, someone with problems maintaining sleep, obviously, is going to maybe benefit better from a benzo that has a little bit longer half-life, maybe a little bit slower onset. Um, that being said, the typical benzos that we see in practice, clonopin, the alprazolam, those are really not the ones that are actually like approved, approved or like designed for insomnia. Um, so some of the ones that we have, we kind of break them down into the duration. So we have the short duration, intermediate and long. The The short duration um, would be triazolam, um, halcyon. So that's the the one that, t- in my experience, I typically have only seen like dentists utilizing yeah. those for like procedures for patients who are really nervous about something. I'll see them before MRIs too. Yeah, exactly. So usually it's like that, but it is a very short, it's a two to six hour half-life. So I mean, not super short, but, um, and then a, a fairly low dose. Tamazepam is the other one that I've seen people be on. Well, that's considered an intermediate uh, duration or duration of action uh, benzo. And uh, then we get into what um, we have one more intermediate, which is um, estazolam. And then we have our two long actings, uh, florazepam and quazepam. 
uh, which I think we had talked before we started recording. I think we've heard of like maybe one patient being on flurazepam, but the half-life for the last two that I mentioned, flurazepam and quazepam is, is variable. It's 48 to 120 hours. 120 hour benzo. Most people would consider that too long to be on a benzo. <laughs> Most reasonable people may. So that's one dose. Um, but, you know, mechanistically, all of these are going to be working. They're, they're binding to the benzodiazepine receptors um, on the postsynaptic GABA neuron. Um, they are going to help to decrease sleep latency and increase stage N2 or sleep, or, um, and then also the time of total sleep. Um, they re- it reduces delta sleep and REM sleep. So when you hear people talk about these not being good for long-term you know, use, that's kind of why you're not getting that deeper sleep, um, that N3. And, and so it's one of those situations where it can help you get to sleep and you might help the anxiety that you're feeling beforehand, but long-term it ends up causing more problems than it's worth. Right. Um, they all carry a box warning for, uh, you know, watching for patients who are using these in combination with things like opioids, um, or alcohol, things like that. They can also lower your central nervous system activity. And then, um, being aware that they are they do have a high abuse and addiction potential. Um, and then there's also dependence withdrawal reactions that can happen as well. So that's the other thing. If you have a patient coming to you that's been on benzos for, you know, years in some cases, mm-hmm. don't, that's not the the point where you go, you know what, it's time to make a change. <laughs> you stopped all their benzos because they're probably going to have some problems. Yeah. Um, you have to taper that off and, and still be safe about it. Uh, and then after the treatment for several months, um, up to 40, this is based on a few different studies, but up to 40% of patients develop tolerance, if not dependence, um, to being on a benzo. Which is significant. And the other thing is with the rebound insomnia, um, which is weird because it actually is more specifically happens with the shorter acting agents, is also very common. And um, again, the, the controlled substances, you got to follow all those laws and whatnot. Yeah, I think, so temazepam is definitely the one, the benzo that I see most often. Um, you would think based on the half-life, triazolam might make sense, but it has its own issues. Um, for instance, it can cause daytime anxiety because it's more related to like a withdrawal between doses because you completely clear it in about, you know, five half-lives or so. By the time you take your next dose, you take another one that you completely clear it. So you could have some kind of withdrawal anxious type symptoms. Um, it also has some interactions. You'd want to use caution or reduce the dose if taken with a CYP3 or 4 inhibitor. And that's a moderate or weak. Moderate or weak. So that's yes. like very, usually it's a strong that we don't right. have to worry about. But yeah, in this case, it could be bad. And along with that, um, with triazolam and astazolam, patients with compromised respiratory function, you'd want to use caution because of respiratory depression. Um, the long-acting ones, flurazepam and quazepam, um, may impair ability to operate machinery for several days after discontinuing. So because of the long half-life, you would need to use caution there. Not recommended at all in elderly patients. And quazepam may increase the concentrations of drugs like bupropion and epavirins um, acting as CYP2B6 substrates. And the bupropion one kind of caught my eye because you could have a patient who you have on bupropion for you know, depression, smoking cessation, whatever, but lowering the seizure threshold is one of the things that bupropion we have to worry about. And if you were to add this drug on there, especially with this long half-life, who knows, you could start causing a bunch of problems from the bupropion on top of it. So not surprising you don't see those used very often. No, if at all. All right, so let's jump into our next little group, uh, antidepressants. Um, So the first one we'll talk about is doxepin, uh, which is a tricyclic antidepressant. Um, When you are talking about the lower doses of doxepin, so like three to six milligrams, uh, you're blocking the histamine one receptors um, with better affinity than the, the higher doses. Um, it does carry a box warning because of the risk of suicidal thinking behavior in children, adolescents, and adults. But that's the box warning that's on all, uh, you know, antidepressant type medications, and something I wouldn't be worried about in someone who's just using this for uh, for insomnia. Uh, if a patient um, has obstructive sleep apnea, they have untreated narrow angle glaucoma, um, or if they have like severe urinary retention, um, this is not a good uh, drug for them because basically it can cause anticholinergic effects, as we all know from our tricyclics. And so all those problems can potentially get worse. The duration of action is around seven hours. And uh, so the chances of morning effects are definitely 
um, high with this medication, even though it tends to be considered a little bit more safe than some of the other controlled substances. Uh, other adverse effects, we have to worry about things like headache, nausea, diarrhea, hypertension, dry mouth, um, next day somnolence, um, and especially if it's taken with food because that kind of allows the drug to hang around even longer. You're really not supposed to take it within three hours of a meal. Um, take it within 30 minutes of bedtime. So you do have a timing issue there, whereas like the lunestas and those, you can kind of take it a little bit closer to bedtime or at bedtime. Um, and it is more helpful in reducing awakenings during the night compared to actual sleep onset, just because of how quickly it gets in your system. So I, I will say I talked to uh, Patrick Key, who's the, the psych specialist pharmacist. He's been on our podcast several times now. He said that him and uh, some of his colleagues use this quite a bit. He was at the was he at the VA at the yeah. time? Yeah, I, I feel think like he's at the Institute of Psychiatry now. Now he is. I feel like I see this more in like VA type patients, it, I, which is I, interesting. I don't know why that would be, but and I don't know if this is the case, but I imagine like if somebody who has substance abuse issues, alcohol dependence, things like that, this would be the option that I would probably go with. Right, you'd avoid benzos and yeah. even like the ambience and things. Or if there's an underlying depression component, maybe yeah. you know that would be a good option. What you see a lot of, um, as far from the antidepressant class, um, I feel like I do at least, is trazodone. Uh, so that's another um, option. It inhibits serotonin reuptake. It blocks H1 and alpha-1 adrenergic receptors. So it has a box warning for increased risk of suicidal thinking and behavior in children, adolescents, and adults. So it kind of carries that antidepressant um, box warning. The most evidence with trazodone is going to be similarly in patients who have depression along with insomnia. And it actually, which we talked about this a few weeks ago, has reasonable data along with an SSRI and general anxiety disorder. Um, so that combo. <clears throat> that combo. Which, I don't know if you're in your experience, but I feel like people get nervous about that. Like people, oh, SSRI plus trazodone. Because of the serotonin, serotonin yeah, syndrome. Is, yeah. The yeah. odds of seeing serotonin syndrome are very... Which I have seen it, but it was in a dude who had more than just these two yeah. things going on. I mean, the, the, the trazodone plus NSSRI has good data in yeah. that disease. So, and also, yes, it has some serotonin reuptake inhibition, but it also is affecting as histamine and alpha-1, androgenic right. receptors, other things at play. So it has other side effects like orthostatic hypotension, priapism, which I had heard that, you know, the, the histaminergic blocking it's just not the best for long-term mm -hmm. like sleep, chronic well, insomnia type deal. And the orthostatic hypotension, have you ever talked to anybody who's experienced that with mm -hmm. this? So I, I, my, uh, I, I told her I was going to tell the story, but um, my sister-in-law took this one time for the first time, and she was actually spending the night over here with us because it was a holiday or something. I can't remember what she was here, but was late because she was going to work that day. She didn't mm -hmm. work the holiday jumped she was late to late to hearing our alarm jumped out of bed ran and she went up the stairs mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden i just heard like boom, and oh, just no. she got to the top of the stairs and just straight fell backwards she literally like, jumped literally, out of bed and well and then ran through the and living ran room th ran to the, the stairs and just i mean i was like well she's gonna have a traumatic brain injury i mean she fell so hard My and she gosh. doesn't have any memory of it she just said she got the top and just everything went black I've, I've talked to a few, so I've seen it, and I've talked to a few people. So the, the moral of that story is you please, please warn people about the orthostatic hypotension, especially elderly patients, because she's not elderly, and she still ricocheted her head off the ground. She's fine now, by the way, which That's is why like, I can, I can okay. warn Yeah, yeah, she's totally fine. Um, but uh, she she was concussed, for sure. But um, now now we laugh about it. But uh, older patients, and then starting off at a lower dose, and at least warning patients about that. I feel like that's something that's always in the textbook, so we just kind of like sometimes blow past it. It's, yeah. it's important. Real-life consequences. Yeah. We'll blow p past the priapism, though. Yeah. Could you imagine? That's, the one, that's all. How many emails will get? Oh, yeah, priapism with this. <laughs> it's Cole's fault, everyone. Mirtazapine? Mm. Mirtazapine. So this is one that uh, I almost didn't even think about including, but there is enough people that try to use this for, for sleep. Um, it's a tetracyclic antidepressant. I'm sure all of y'all are familiar with mirtazapine when treating depression. It's going to increase the release of, of norepinephrine and serotonin. Um, it also blocks different serotonin receptors. So like 5-HT2A, which is why we don't necessarily think um, of like the sexual dysfunction and things like that is, is as much with this compared to some of our SSRIs and whatnot. Um, it also uh, will block 5-HT2C, uh, the, that serotonin receptor, which is why the, the hunger and the weight gain is so prevalent. Um, and it also has high affinity 
for histamine 1 receptors at lower doses. And so as the dose increases, the affinity for that histamine 1 receptor also De- or that decreases. So it's an inverse relationship. Um, I actually saw this uh, where a patient was started on a very low dose of mirtazapine and it was helping with their sleep, and mm-hmm. so, but it not quite all the way there. And then they, uh, the whoever it was, their primary care bumped it up to 15 milligrams, I think it was, and then had, a, had it scheduled to go up to 30 after that. And basically... The patient, and once they got past 15, they're like, it, it stopped working. And mm. they're like, well, I guess yep. it just stopped working. I'm like, no, decrease the dose. There's a reason. So, yes, in low doses. Or if you are, just a side note, if you are giving this to someone who is taking it for depression and they're complaining about the sedation, tell them as the dose goes up, that'll go away in most yeah. patients. Yeah. But a lot of different adverse effects, QT prolongation, potentially appetite and weight gain are the two biggest things people complain about, anticholinergic effects. So this is one that I would personally try to stay away from in most cases. It's not not my favorite for sleep um, just because of some of the side effects and issues like that. You'll also hear about Elevil a little bit. Um, you know, I like Doxepin better than Yeah, that. probably go Doxepin over Elevil. Yeah, but, but they, it's, they it's, definitely, it's cheaper. They might do it in <laughs> the case of... is definitely cheaper. It's cheaper. They might do it in the case of like migraine plus insomnia or yeah. something like that. Um so there's another class called orexin receptor antagonists. Um, I believe we have three drugs in this class that are approved for um, insomnia that are reasonable options. So there's Belsomra, su- suvorexant, uh, blocks um, the orexin 1 and 2 receptors, uh, can cause daytime drowsiness and next day driving impairment. So you need to warn patients about that. Um, this is more common in female patients and patients who have a BMI greater than 30, interestingly. Um, it can cause patients to experience sleep paralysis. Look that up. It's crazy. Hallucinations um, and cataplexy. So those are all pretty concerning side effects that you would want to warn patients about, especially sleep paralysis. Look it up. It's crazy. Should be taken within 30 minutes of bedtime. Um, can cause cough, dry mouth, diarrhea, dizziness, and has some interactions with uh, 3A4 inhibitors. So you would have to start the dose lower with a strong 3A4 inhibitor, uh, 5 milligrams in particular. If it was moderate, like those high as M, 10 milligrams would be the starting dose. And then we have uh, Limborexin, which is another drug in that class. And, and if you're not familiar with Orexin, um, basically think of Orexin as being a neurotransmitter that promotes wakefulness, so to speak. So instead of causing the hypnotic effect, the, the sedation on the benzo side of things, we're basically blocking the neurotransmitter that's responsible for making us feel awake in the first place. You're kind of coming at it from a different, um, the other side of the spectrum. So I, I, the idea of it's really, you know, pretty, pretty solid, but that's when we talk about orexin, that's what we're talking about. So limborexin is uh, going to bind to both orexin receptors, has a little bit more affinity for um, orexin 2. Uh, still can cause the, the daytime somnolence, next day driving impairment, things like that. Same, uh, more commonly in Female patients, patients with BMI greater than 30, um, same issues with sleep paralysis, hallucinations, those types of things like Cole mentioned. Um, and patients that uh, take it with food, specifically a high fat or high calorie meal, um, you decrease the max concentration of the drug by 23% roughly. And it does still have the interactions with CYP3A4. If it's a moderate 3A4, then you're actually, it's like contraindicated to use this medication. It's a really strong interaction. And then max dose of five milligrams if you're taking it with a weak CYP3A4. So just remember to always check your drug-drug interactions with yeah. these orexin inhibitors. Yeah, definitely. Um, the last is Deradorexant Cuvavik. Uh, so it's going to be very similar to Belsamara in its mechanism um, as well as side effects. So next day drowsiness and driving impairment in a, the similar female um, patient population and patients with BMI greater than 30 can also cause sleep paralysis, hallucinations, and cataplexy. Should also be taken within 30 minutes of bedtime. But the drug interactions are more similar to the um, limborexant, and that would be avoid with strong or moderate CYP3A4 inhibitors. And I believe the, uh, yeah, the, the Cubavec and the Davigo, Davigo mm-hmm. uh, are, are newer. Yeah, they are. All right, so let's talk, last but not least, we'll talk about our melatonin receptor agonist. Um, so we have Relmaton or Rosarem. 
This is a melatonin type 1, uh, which melatonin type 1 receptors promote sleep onset, and type 2 receptor agonist, so, which is the type 2 is more responsible for synchronizing like your sleep-wake phases. Um, it doesn't affect type 3 receptors, and it's going to bind to melatonin receptors with greater affinity than actual melatonin does. Ideally taken 30 minutes before bedtime on an empty stomach. A um, couple things to keep in mind. It can increase prolactin levels in females. Uh, it can lower testosterone levels in males. And um, common adverse effects uh, in morning sleepiness, fatigue, and um, probably one of the weirdest side effects, exacerbated insomnia. <laughs> So that's not great. Um, also, too, you have to watch if it's being used, uh, if there's any co-common use of a CYP1A2 inhibitor. Specifically, a lot of that data comes from giving this with fluvoxamine. Um, that can cause a lot of issues, so that's contraindicated with any 1A2 inhibitor. And uh, typically associated with, um, or not typically, excuse me, not typically associated with dependence or tolerance. Um, I don't think we mentioned, but the orexin inhibitors, uh, the three in that class are all controlled substances as well. So this one is not. So that's one thing that's good. But uh, it's really only going to be effective for like isolated sleep onset. It's not going to help to maintain sleep. And if you look at a lot of the guidelines from around the world, um, a lot of them recommend against using Remelton and OTC melatonin um, because the, the placebo-controlled studies are just extremely unimpressive. Yeah. So um, these are the ones that I personally try to stay away from. I wonder if the safety studies for, mel for actual melatonin, which who knows how many there are of that, show any issues with the prolactin or testosterone. It's a good question. You know? Yeah. Like, I can't a imagine. A lot of people take melatonin. They do. I feel like I would be surprised if it's it was not potent enough. Yeah. I mean, some people take some whopping doses of that that's stuff. That's true. Well, it's, it's doing a whole lot of nothing. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, but I have a, my, my thing with melatonin is like if you're taking, as long as it's a reasonable dose, because yeah. there's a huge placebo effect yeah. with melatonin. Like I don't think there's really been any concrete, well, produce studies that have showed yeah. a benefit with melatonin my thing is like people who swear by it great keep taking it yeah because it's not really going to cause a lot of trauma yeah. unless we if unless, you try it and you feel like you're going to sleep better and you're functioning well during the day unless we find sure. out later on that it increases your prolactin and females right. and crash your testosterone yeah, guys turns then, out you got low t but you're sleeping better. do not quote us <laughs> yeah. all right um, let's put it all together yeah so we'll put it all together um so we went through each kind of individual section but as far as where to use them and when to use them with sleep it is difficult so we're of course doing the cbti first line as well as the if sleep possible. hygiene if possible um, and if the patient's open to it um, but then the next thing is where we need to identify what is their complaint is it sleep onset insomnia or is it sleep maintenance or a combination of the two um, so we talked about what those means sleep onset being difficulty uh, falling asleep within 30 minutes um, and once asleep, the sleep quality and quantity are good, and you're not really dealing with awakenings. With the main, with the sleep maintenance or mixed insomnia, um, it's more difficulty sleeping through the night, and your wake ups are about 30 minutes or more, but you're going to sleep just fine. So, if it is sleep onset is your issue, um, and you desire to avoid a first line benzodiazepine receptor agonist, and specifically with that, we're more referencing the non benzo benzos. Um, but, but it would include, benzos, yeah. would include the old ones too. But like when you see that, you think old benzos, but we, if we're trying to avoid the non-benzo benzos first. So um, there are guidelines that recommend against the use of Vermelteon. Up-to-date would recommend in this instance the use of Vermelteon for sleep onset if you're not going to use one of the, um, the medications that act on the benzodiazepine receptor. And, you know, probably due to like lack of efficacy with the other ones. Um, and then they would say, consider an herbal off-label or over-the-counter option. So a sedating antidepressant like the ones we talked about, um, short-term use of um, diphenhydramine or doxylamine, which we didn't really talk about, but really that should be limited to just a few days for like an acute situation, I would think. Yeah. Um, or melatonin, and we gave our opinions about that. So basically with that first block, we're thinking, for us, I mean, I'm assuming you agree, I would go either trazodone or, um, or doxepin. I think and, so. Yeah. And then Remelteon maybe can go on the back, back on the shelf. And that's if you want to avoid right. one of the benzodiazepine acting agents. And what are those situations? Maybe a patient has a concern about it, which is reasonable. Substance um, use disorder. Substance use disorder. They're on a lot of other CNS depressing agents and you're concerned about that, that sort of thing. Elderly. Um, 
But if you're not concerned about that, then you would probably go with one of those. So the up-to-date says Remelteon's okay here too, uh, but otherwise you would do a non-benzo benzo, like a Sopoclone, Zalepilon, Ambien, uh, and then consider the um, antidepressants as well, possibly melatonin, possibly OTC stuff. Um, that's if it's sleep onset. If it's sleep maintenance or it's a mix of the two uh, and you want to avoid one of the benzodiazepine receptor agonists, then this is where the... Um, DORAs come into play. Um, the orexin receptor um, antagonists come into play. So you could consider one of those first line um, of the three that we talked about, or low dose doxepin here would be first line. But remember, those are still controlled substances. <laughs> They're still controlled substances. So if so. the controlled substance reason is why you're not using yeah. the other ones, then that doesn't really fit here. Right. Still controlled substances. And then you could also consider other um, antidepressants. Gabapentin they include here, um, and OTC medications. Uh, if you don't care about the benzodiazepine receptors, first line, you can consider the DORAs, low-dose doxepin, the non-benzo-benzos, and then consider the other antidepressants, gabapentin, OTC, meds. Nowhere in up-to-date's um, algorithm do they include the traditional benzodiazepine yeah. receptor antagonists. So I, I think you could probably get pretty far with the without sedating them. medications we have now without having to use temazepam. Uh, triazolam. Or, triazolam or, or the other. especially fluorazepam. Or especially the ones that aren't used. Um, or especially the ones with the four-day half-life. Or clonopin or diazepam or alprazolam, any of that stuff, I think we can get pretty far without yeah. having to include those. Even if the patient has an underlying anxiety disorder, treat the anxiety per the appropriate first-line algorithm. Don't just try to combine those two into a traditional benzo. Right. Absolutely. Um, and then last thing is the there was a meta-analysis that was published in Lancet in July of 2022, uh, and it was titled The Comparative Effects of Pharmacological Interventions for the Acute and Long-Term Management of Insomnia Disorder in Adults. And so just to touch on a couple points, um, they said overall S-Zipiclone and Lemborexent had a favorable profile as far as, you know, efficacy and and use in the in, in, in a real patient population or populations um it's typical and they do say that it might cause substantial adverse effects because a little bit longer half-life um the metallic taste things like that um the safety data on lembrexent uh, were sort of inconclusive probably because it's just a newer drug we don't have as much post-marketing surveillance um doxepin and zaloplan were well tolerated but the data on efficacy and other important outcomes were scarce and uh were hard to make any kind of like firm conclusions based on so i think a lot of that stuff like the doxepin for instance, is more anecdotal evidence or special cases with Zalplan, like using that as needed if they wake up in the middle of the night. Uh, benzodiazepines, um, deradexant, um, suvorexant, and trazodone can also be effective in the acute treatment of insomnia, but were associated with poor tolerability, um, and they're, they all lack information about long-term effects um, and, and how patients respond long-term. And then they closed with melatonin and, and remelteon did not show any overall benefit. So hmm. probably not a good option. So even Lancet kind of making fun of those options. But uh, it, it's still, it's. I'm glad they did a meta-analysis like this. It's, it's still not super crystal clear as far as which one to actually utilize. So I think you have to kind of, at least in my what I do in my mind when I'm trying to come up with a treatment algorithm is that patient specifics, looking at something like the up-to-date algorithm, and there's other guidelines as well, and then taking things like this meta-analysis, and then I try to just put all that together and pick whatever may be right for that particular patient, I think is, you know, at least my strategy for kind of handling this, which is one of the reasons why I like pharmacotherapy. It's a big, yeah. giant puzzle that you got to make fit together. Anything with the brain yeah. is just not clear-cut. Right. Anything. And, and what works for some patients may not work at all for others, and you got to try some things. So it's definitely uh, much, much harder than just give them Ambien, get them out of here. Yeah. <laughs> Six refills. <laughs> so, yeah, it is. And then we have nighttime turkey. Yeah. yeah. What if it was the best turkey you ever made, though? <laughs> I know. <laughs> That'd be interesting. All right, guys. So um, thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much to FreeCE for continuing to partner with us. And, uh, you know, it's been probably a year and a half since we started with them. So we have a ton of episodes on the, the website now, on the, on their website, uh, that you can get credit for, uh, which licenses are for some of you are going to be coming due here in the next few months. Um, and so get your CE credit in. Make sure you check out all their content on the website if you have not done so already. 
if you're tired of our little tangents that we go on and want more straightforward, like nerd style lectures, then we are, have a treat for you, which is uh, our Patreon account. Uh, so it's a subscription service. It's $3 a month or um, it's like 36 maybe $33, maybe something like that, maybe even less um, for a year supply. You get access to all the Patreon lectures, which are actual lecture style PowerPoints. You get to download all the PowerPoints. Um, and it's just lectures that I prepared. I, I might tweak certain things, but uh, lectures that I prepared for the PA students that I for the college that I teach at. So make sure you check that out. Um, I've gotten a lot of good uh, issues um, or a lot of good uh, feedback, not issues. <laughs> a lot of good feedback from patients who have used. In fact, a few people have said they've used our podcast and the Patreon to help study for boards. So if anybody asks, we're basically a board certification study group. Might as well be. And uh, we're, we're going to start doing some like live cases on Patreon as well. And um, got some other things in the pipeline for 2023. So make sure you check that out. Um, huge thanks to Pearls. Uh, if you have not checked out the app, Pearls, P-Y-R-L-S, dot com slash core consult rx drug information uh application that's been making upgrades literally every month the entire year uh, but they've sponsored us this whole year and so uh, really really appreciate their support um, they've been outstanding and uh, if you have not checked them out yet make sure you uh, go to that link in the show notes uh, again pearls.com slash core consult rx you sign up for a free account check it out you get some free treatment algorithm like pdf files and things you can keep and uh, if you like it you can always upgrade to the paid version um, which is still very reasonable uh, if not no harm no foul but appreciate them uh if you want to contact me or cole or even aj uh if, if we can find him when he's on vacation um our emails will all be in the show notes you can text us directly at the number that's in the show notes and reach us on any of the social media platforms and we'll do our best to uh get back to you as quick as we can as always thank you guys so much make sure you go to the link to get to the post activity test for, for your unlimited members free ce people and uh the password again is sleep uh, all capital letters thank you guys so much we'll catch you in the next episode have a great one